Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current, classic, and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm so pleased to welcome our guest tonight, three-time Emmy-nominated actress, Academy Award-nominated director and producer, and former president of the Screen Actors Guild Foundation, Joe Beth Williams. Hi, Joe Beth. Hi, Steve. Nice to hear your voice again. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Beth and I have actually worked on three projects together. I was a unit publicist back in 1981 on an Alan Rudolph thriller called Endangered Species, which starred Joe Beth and Robert Urich. And then three years later, I worked with Joe Beth and John Boyd and Ellen Barkin and Annabeth Gish on a movie called Desert Bloom for Columbia Pictures. And then uh, a decade later at Showtime, uh, Joe Beth came over for our Directed By series and directed a short film that was nominated for an Oscar uh, on Hope, right, Joe Beth? That's right, with Mercedes Rule and Annette O'Toole. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, I consider you just a national treasure uh, in so many ways. You've always brought, brought such warmth and joy to the cinema and to television. And uh, we're really happy to have you on a show that celebrates film. I wanted to kind of go back to the early days. I actually read on Wikipedia, and sometimes Wikipedia is, is correct and sometimes it's not, but was your father at one point in his career involved with cable? Oh, no, not the cable you're thinking of. Well, no, no. I'm not talking about film cable. I'm talking about wire cable. Yes, because he was, in fact, an opera singer uh, in Houston, Texas, and sang with the Houston Grand Opera some, and trying to make your living as an opera singer in Houston, Texas then, uh, was, as now, was very difficult. And so he worked for a company that made wire and cable as a manager of their business in Houston. Now, the reason I mention this is that my, the family business I grew up with was called Jack Rubin and Sons Wire Rope in Compton, California, which was a prominent distributor of wire cable. Wow. So we just definitely, even though we worked at Showtime in that form of cable, <laughs> we have a, another cable connection here. But tell me, when you, were, when you were little and you were contemplating things to have fun and have fun, were you always interested in performance? You know, I think I was. I mean, I think I was just a natural ham bone. I was an only child and uh, my mom started me in ballet when I was like three. It was ballet tap and tap, you know. Uh, and actually it was in a studio that Annette O'Toole's aunt ran. Uh, it's a small world. Annette is also from Houston. Um, but this was before Annette was there. She's younger than I am. Um, and I, I just really loved, you know, I was always wanting to dance around and and my dad was not only a singer, but he was he also did some painting. Uh, and I have pictures of me at a very early age, um, sitting with a shower cap on my head for some strange reason, but with a paintbrush in my hand and very, and concentrating on trying to paint God knows what. 
Um, <laughs> so, but I always, I have to say about my parents, they were, they were, they were great because they supported whatever it was that I was interested in. And my mom made the dance costumes, you know, all the moms did in those days. And, uh, and I, I loved getting up there and tapping around and swirling in my little tutu and all of that stuff. Um, so I guess I was sort of a natural performer and that probably partly came from my dad since he was a performer. Uh, and my mom said, I used to go out in, <laughs> in the front yard in this front of our small house in this small neighborhood in Houston. Uh, and I would pretend that I was an opera singer and, you know, I was like six or seven and I would, uh, sing in a very high voice and, <laughs> and I'm sure it was really bad and really loud because the next door neighbor would scream at her child and say stop that screaming so but that did not stop me at all you know uh I I didn't care I was I went forward with what I wanted to do um but I did as I got a little older I, I was interested in doing a lot of things, you know, I was interested in being uh, a doctor and um, uh, a ballet dancer and an opera singer and an archaeologist. Uh, and so I think what happened was ultimately the only way to do a lot of different things was to become an actor. It's so funny you should mention archaeology. I also found archaeology fascinating until I think I watched one of those Saturday morning mummy movies and they were exploring <laughs> one of the caves and all these spiders and, and snakes came out and I said, nah, maybe I'll choose something a little more <laughs> mundane. <laughs> oh, well, that that's, leads me to poltergeist, which is not something I ever thought I would be doing, dealing with that kind of stuff, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what would you say was your first real break professionally in acting? Because I'm sure you were in school plays. I'm sure you, you were at university, right? I went to Brown University. And it happened that in, in Providence, Rhode Island, where Brown is, um, there was a, a wonderful um, repertory company called Trinity Square Repertory Company. And they were this was in the 70s and they were very um, kind of avant-garde. They had a wonderful scenic designer named uh, Eugene, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the last name, but he went on to do a lot of Broadway productions. Um, and so when I finished, when I graduated Brown, I auditioned for Adrian Hall, who was then the, um, theater director of Trinity. And uh, I remember I auditioned in his kitchen there in Providence. And I was so excited and I was accepted into the company. And I was accepted as what was called an acting fellow, which is sort of basically like an apprentice. Um, and I, there were four of us, one of whom was Richard Jenkins, um, oh, wow. One of whom was an actor named Tom Mason. And 
then I, actually there were five and then there was a married couple tom and mina crow um so dick jenkins and i started out i mean literally we were performing in the shows but we were also backstage cleaning out the rotted meat from the freezer literally <laughs> uh you know it was it was your basic um beginning acting work at theater work and it was so much fun and it was a great company and I got to do classics and uh, you know Moliere, Shakespeare, uh, original musicals, um, an original play about Charles Manson and the family called uh, Son of Man and the Family. Um, Did you get a chance to dance as well? You know, I did some dancing and I did some singing. Not, not a lot of dancing. My dancing skills, I have to say, are limited. Um, wow. But even after all that ballet. Uh, but well, being, I, being from Houston, I would think that you could at least do a Texas two-step. Oh, you betcha. Of course. <laughs> are you kidding? But anyway, it was great to be part of that company. And uh, I had done a, a lot of leads in, in shows at Brown and... And that was really wonderful as well, because it was a great experience. I went in to be a psychology major and spent all my time in the theater. Um, I would think psychology and acting go well together. I think, yeah. I mean, they of course, one feeds the other, no question. And I think part of my interest in acting had to do with what is it that makes people behave in the way that they do. Sure, sure. I think um, many, so that was yeah. that was my that was my real beginning of professional theater, and it was it was very exciting. Well, I know a lot of people remember one of your early projects was um, kind of getting out of Dustin Hoffman's bed in Kramer versus Kramer to bounce <laughs> down the hallway. Uh, how, how did you get that role? <laughs> well, I was. I was living in New York uh, and I had, uh, I did theater in New York. I did, um, I had done probably three or four plays in New York, um, off-Broadway plays. And I was also doing a soap opera at the time um, and The Guiding Light. And I, I, you know, my agent in New York called me and said, uh, there, there is this role um, you would be playing opposite uh, Dustin Hoffman and my heart started to pound and I'm thinking, oh yeah. And he said, by the way, just to <clears throat> let you know, there is a nude scene. And I kind of went, hmm, okay. Uh, that was a little daunting, but he said, they want you to audition. So I went and auditioned for um, the uh, casting director, Shirley, oh gosh, my name, she was really famous, wonderful woman. And then I auditioned for uh, <clears throat> Robert Benton, who was the director, who was probably the sweetest man that ever walked the earth. And um, he and Stanley Jaffe, the producer, really seemed to like my, my audition. And so they brought Dustin in and uh, <clears throat> I auditioned actually with Dustin, which was pretty much an amazing treat. Um, and they cast me in the role. And it was like this sort of 
bolt out of the blue. You know, it was the classic um, uh, magic that just happened to happen. Um, and I was really nervous because there was a nude scene um, and they were wonderful. And they uh, made sure that the set was cleared and and all of that. And I was doing it with his, with the Justin Henry who who was five, and and who was playing uh, Dustin's son because right, I I get up out of the bed wearing nothing but my glasses, and I <laughs> I walk out on the way to the bathroom and run into his five year old son. And I was really nervous about working, especially with a, a child that young. And I, you know, I, I was concerned about whether he would, for years later, be going to shrinks and saying, I don't know, I ran into this woman wearing only glasses outside of the room. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but it's made me insane. And I thought, I'll be paying his shrink bills, you know, for the rest of his life. But his mother was very sweet and she said <clears throat> to him the night before, now, Justin, you know, you're gonna do a scene tomorrow with Joe Beth and she's not gonna be wearing any clothes, um, but that's what the scene calls for. She said, how do you feel about that? He said, I don't know, mom, she's awful skinny. <laughs> and I thought, my God, he's five years old and he's a critic already. You know, I gotta face this. <laughs> So, um, so I, I went and I did it and I was really nervous and Dustin helped sort of pave the way. He said, uh, you know, we rehearsed, I was in a robe and I start under the covers with him. And he said, just to make you feel better, I'm going to be naked too. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't, I don't know that that's really going to make me feel better, Dustin. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. So I said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So <clears throat> I finally, you know, we're going to shoot and I take off the robe. I drop the robe and I scoot under the covers. And it was a very limited crew. You know, they cleared the set and everything. And Dustin took my hand and pulled it toward him, which was already making me nervous. And all of a sudden I felt something kind of weird and feathery and stuff. And he leaped out of the bed and he was wearing an orange feather G-string. <laughs> and he started dancing around in front of the crew. Well, of course, everybody was in hysterics. And I have to say, it really broke the ice for me. You know, it, it made me not feel quite so self-conscious about doing the scene. And then of course, once I was actually doing the scene and the character, it, it felt okay. It felt like I was wearing a costume in a way. Well, that movie won best picture of the year in 79 and obviously you had something to do with it. Well, thanks. <laughs> it was really fun. And it, it did open a lot of doors. Oh, you know? sure because the, everybody saw the movie. It was so popular and successful. And so <clears throat> I got a call to fly to LA and audition for a movie that Sidney Poitier was directing called Stir Crazy. 
uh, with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And that was my second movie, was playing Gene Wilder's girlfriend in that movie and working with the incredible Sidney Poitier. Well, you know, um, obviously, I, I will talk about Endangered Species in a minute because I, I obviously enjoyed working with you very much. That was my first movie working on a film set as a film publicist. Um, but I think everybody who's listening today, and I've been touting Poltergeist, really wants to get a little bit into that. Let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever had any supernatural experiences that you can talk about? Um, not, not really, not, not genuinely. I mean, I have certainly had dreams that seem so real, particularly after my father died. Uh, I was 16 when he died, where I felt that I had been visited by him. But I know that it was, you know, my subconscious trying to comfort me. He was trying to comfort me through my dreams. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I have to say when I went into Poltergeist, um, I, I never thought I would actually do a horror movie because I'm not, a, I've never been a big fan of horror movies, but uh, when my agent said, well, we're going to send you a script called Poltergeist, it's a horror movie, and I kind of went, uh-huh, okay. And they said, oh, by the way, Steven Spielberg is producing. And I went, okay, let me read that script. <laughs> and uh, I actually really liked the script a lot. I loved it. I, I thought that the family was so um, real and so human and, and the situation was, really gripped me. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I was excited to fly out and, and meet Stephen and Toby Hooper who directed it. What, what, I do, what do you remember about the audition? Well, I didn't actually audition. Uh, they just wanted to meet me and they offered it to me as soon as they met me. <clears throat> we literally, I think, had lunch, um, and which was amazing. Stephen, I guess, had seen me in a movie called The Dogs of War, right? Uh, where I played Chris Walken's wife and he had seen a couple of scenes that got cut from the movie and he they wanted me I know their first choice interestingly was Shirley MacLaine I didn't find out that for a long time um, I think partially because of her connection to spirits and you know that kind of thing um, but then they decided they would go, since she turned it down, they would go to, they would go younger. And I guess I was their, their first choice then. So I just flew out and met them and, and they said, okay, you got the part. And then I started reading with guys for the part that Craig ended up playing. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, if Shirley MacLaine had taken the role, I think the movie would have gone in an entirely different direction because people would have been seeing Shirley MacLaine since you were relatively new to movies. And uh, I think that the, the core strength of Diane Freeling is that she's an everyday mom. I mean, this is, this is I think, the core of Steven Spielberg's films, at least these kinds of films, is that he tries to create normalcy. Yeah, absolutely. And we worked very hard when we were shooting it. You know, he, he, before we would shoot scenes, they would have us 
Steve, Stephen, um, sorry, Craig, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, Robbie, uh, and Carol Ann, and Dominique, who played our older daughter, uh, we would improvise the family scenes a little bit to get us into it. Generally, what was filmed was mostly the script is written, but some of it was came out of our improvisation too, so that we all began to feel very natural with each other and, and very much like a family. When, when I worked with you on Desert Bloom, I think three, four years later, I remember before we started shooting, you were with Ellen and, and you and the two girls who played your daughters were just hanging out together, having lunch in your house. And I remember how you were just getting comfortable with each other, just, just being very friendly and, and comfortable. Did you have the same experience with Heather and Dominique and, 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 and Robbie? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the amazing thing about Heather, because she was, again, five, I mean, she was, you know, a tiny, tiny little girl. She was such a natural actress. And I, you know, I was really nervous about all that, that we all were going to have to go through, but particularly for her. And her mother, Kathy, who is such a sweet woman, um, <clears throat> she just sort of had said to Heather, um, you know, Jo Beth is going to be playing your mom in this movie. And so Heather, on the very first day when she was introduced to me, she just smiled at me and took me by the hand and sort of held on to my hand and said, you're going to be my mommy in this movie. And I said, yes, I am. And we hung out together. And when we were shooting, if I would cry, Heather would cry. If I would scream, Heather would scream. I mean, she was so em empathetic, so empathic in a way. She was tuned into what I was feeling, what I was doing. And it was a physically very hard movie. Uh, and for a little girl that age to, she just held up, you know, she just was an amazing trooper and yet so present and so there and working off what was happening in the moment and how she felt I was feeling in the moment. You know, so it, that, that was extraordinary to me. It's interesting, Steven Spielberg, um, who was producing and co-wrote the script, is such a family-friendly person. I, I can't think of a probably a, a more appropriate father figure in many ways. And yet, and yet, in some of his films, he puts kids through living hell. I mean, uh, I <laughs> yes, mean, obvious in in Jurassic Park, the, the kids are about to be squashed by a T Rex, and in Poltergeist, Carol Ann's being ripped away from her bed into this vortex. Uh, were you on the set that day when she was going through all that craziness? Oh, yeah, because, you know, I had to do, I was on a, I was on a set that, Heather wasn't on this, this same set, but I was on the part of the set when the door opened to the bedroom, which fell out from under me, basically, and I was sort of suspended, hanging on air, reaching out. And I was pretty much there every 
every time Heather shot. And I mean, Heather and I did the, the whole thing where we were in the bathtub after we had dropped through the ceiling and we were right. covered in, in this gel that was, that had been made by the special effects makeup department. And it was very cold. It was, it was kind of like hair gel, but thicker. And, and it was cold on the set and it was cold and she was shaking in my arms. We were both really cold lying there in that bathtub and, and shaking and bless her heart. She just, she never complained. She never complained. I remember asking you about one of my favorite scenes, you know, the, the, the thing we were talking about earlier about Stephen's quest for normalcy. And we should talk about the Toby Hooper, by the way, because Toby Hooper directed this feature from start to finish with a lot of creative input from Stephen. But what was your impression of Toby when you first met him? He was a really likable guy. He, he, he's a very likable guy. Um, he, um, you know, he had made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so that was, I think the effects and stuff were, were very much what he had been into. Um, and sometimes when I talked to him about the character or what was happening, he, he didn't really speak actor's language, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, he was a terrific guy, really a, a lovely, very creative guy. But sometimes in, in trying to communicate with us, I think, um, I think one of the reasons that Stephen was around was because he facilitated that. You know, Stephen, Stephen's very good at that, just at talking to actors and, and just saying, well, you know, here's what we're going to do and we're going to try this and what do you feel about it and everything. Um, so he sort of sometimes could be a go-between uh, between Toby and, and the actors, but sure. Toby was a really nice guy and he was there all the time, absolutely. Well, the scene that I remember us talking about, because it was interesting the way you described it, is the moment in the kitchen when uh, Carol Ann is, um, is pointing, is sitting, sitting on her stool and something's going on with the kitchen table. And uh, as the scene plays, it's in one shot where you walk to the middle of the kitchen, then you walk back to the dining room and the chairs are all stacked on top of those. And as a, as a viewer, it's one of those things that makes your, uh, you know, your spine tingle. And you told me uh, a little bit about what was actually happening in that scene. <laughs> and you got to tell the, the listeners about that because I thought that was kind of amusing. Well, you know, you have to remember this was 1981, 1980, 81. And, uh, and special effects were not computer generated in the way that they are now. So uh, what, what was supposed to happen was I, I left her at the breakfast table and I walk over to the sink and I'm doing something at the sink. And when I turn around and look, the dining, the, the breakfast room chairs are all stacked up on top of the breakfast table, which happens in like, you know, 30 seconds. And so the way they did it was I walked away and walked 
over to the sink. And behind me was the sound of thundering elephants as probably 15 crew guys, you know, six ran in, pulled out the old table and chairs and six more ran in and put the, the table that had had the chairs glued and stacked on top of it in place. And this is all in one camera move. So of course you don't hear anything when you see it in the movie, but I'm over at the sink and I hear this pounding and thundering as these guys are swearing and running into each other and putting the table and chairs up. And it was so hard not to laugh because it was really loud. And then I turn around and lo and behold, there it is. Um, and, and, and I, I, you know, everybody in the theater is just like crawling from that scene. Um, you know, it's moments like that 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 make uh, the movie. I know you're not in the scene, but one of my another one of my favorite scenes is when Craig's character is um, is uh, on the hillside with James Karen, and they're talking about uh, what really was there before the the development, and then us. Uh, then Toby pulls back and you realize they're standing on a cemetery ground and it's just it's just creepsville. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me about Craig. Uh, you guys just worked beautifully together. Uh, he was cast fairly early or did, were there other people? Uh, he was, no, he was cast. I read with a few people, including Craig, but he was far and away as far as I was concerned the guy who uh, who should do the, the part. And uh, Stephen was interested in one other person, I think, but mostly Craig. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just think Craig really helped make that movie what it was because, you know, Craig was a stand-up comic for a period of time and he is really a funny guy and he's a very good improviser. Um, and when we did the, the smoking pot scene in the bedroom, he did some of the funniest riffs, that whole thing about him sticking his stomach out and pulling it in and all that. That's all him, you know? And, uh, and we had so much fun with that scene because of course we could pretend to be stoned. So it was sort of like anything goes. Um, and I think it's one of the things that, that made the movie so popular because it was very real for that time. You know, they were young jazzy parents and, and they were smoking weed. Um, so oh, I that love that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's funny because um, everything that was designed in the house was designed very carefully. The kids, I think, uh, I think Robbie has a Star Wars poster up and, uh, you know, there were contemporary references. I always refer to that as kind of the Stephen King look where Stephen King is known for writing very normal sequences where people are having, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes for breakfast and watching Hollywood squares and then a vampire flies in the window. But Stephen, uh, his production seemed to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other characters, and the, the, there's a number of characters that just work beautifully with you. Uh, you. You got a chance to work with the diminutive uh, Zelda Rubenstein. She must've been a real hoot. She was. She was really funny. She was, um, and she was just terrific in her part, I thought. She just, you know, she brought it a reality and a life um, 
that is classic, just classic. And she was so funny because she had a boyfriend who must have been six, six. And he would come on this ad and he was probably 15 years younger than she was. Um, and the two of them were just amazing together. Um, and she was really, she just, you know, nothing bothered her. She just was there and, you know, she would do anything. And uh, I really loved working with her. I loved working with Beatrice Strait. Sure. B was just, she said, oh, call me Auntie B. Everyone does. I said, oh, I can't call you Auntie B, but I did. And, and you know, she was just so, such a great actress, but so loving and down to earth. Uh, Richard Lawson, you know, who, who played the, um, one of the paranormal guys, he was amazing. It was, a, it was such a good cast. I mean, oh, they sure. cast really, really well. You know, you, you, we mentioned the comedy part. I mean, uh, the, the dining room table sequence where Beatrice's character is explaining what a poltergeist is. And then the, uh, the, the um, candelabras <laughs> move across the table. Yeah. And, and one of the guys takes a quick photo, forgets to remove the lens cap. I mean, that's really <laughs> funny stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that, you know, that Stephen, when he forgets to <laughs> remove the lens cap, that's, that's got to be Stephen. <laughs> now, in, in the crazy moments in the movie, like the abduction sequence for Carol Ann, where there's wind, it must have been, I mean, film sets are normally long and complicated, but when you add effects with wind, and sound. I mean, some directors over the years have been known to use different different um, techniques to inspire the cast. Uh, when they made the original movie, The Haunting, with Claire Bloom and and uh, Julie Harris, Robert Wise was known to you know make lar large sounds on the set to scare that the cast a little bit. Were there things that Toby did during filming? to augment the craziness to give you more inspiration or was it really pretty much you on your own? Well, it was interesting because they didn't really know exactly what the effects would look like. They didn't know, they hadn't done full designs of what the, the, the visual effects that were gonna be added in later would be. Uh, for example, we did a lot of <clears throat> blue screen now called green screen um and you know i remember craig and i hanging in harnesses in front of blue screens going well and and they'd say okay now scream <laughs> and we'd say uh well what are we screaming at and they'd say okay we don't know yet but look up where i'm holding this stick and scream at that because it's gonna be really, really scary. So Craig and I would scream and scream and then we kind of look at each other and roll our eyes like, oh Lord, I hope it's scary. Otherwise we're gonna look like idiots. But for the most part, you know, the stuff particularly that I was doing was so physically difficult. And you know, movie days are long. They're 14, 15, 16 hour days sometimes for actors. And uh, when I was doing um, 
being pulled across the ceiling, mm -hmm. you know, that was what was called a gimbal set, which was, it was like a Ferris wheel in a way with the, with the, the bedroom set built on it and it revolved 360 degrees. And what happened was basically I stayed in place and the set revolved underneath me, around me. So I was always sliding and the set was, you know, revolving. Um, and the cameraman, bless his soul, was locked onto the set. So he was truly revolving 360 degrees. And I remember at one point that incredible cameraman who was, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he was so great. After like 30 takes of me, you know, sliding around this thing and him going around and around, he said, I have to get off. And he went and he puked because, you know, he was going around like on a Ferris wheel over and over, but he was going upside down. Um, and for me, the hardest part was that when they created the ceiling of the bedroom, they duplicated the one that was built on the regular set, which was a cottage cheese ceiling. So as I got pulled around the ceiling in my little nightshirt, I was getting all scraped up. And I remember after 20 takes or so, I, you know, they, they let me off and I said, Stephen, I, I'm, I'm bleeding. My elbows and knees are bleeding. And he said, oh, it's okay. We can wipe it off. It'll never show. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I feel so much better now. Thank you. <laughs> by, by the way, the cameraman you're thinking of is Matthew Leonetti. Well, Matt was, Matt was our, our director of photography, but I don't think he was actually writing the gimbal. Oh, okay. So I you're talking about. I think it was about... another camera operator who was writing. Oh, okay. I'm looking down the list of. I've got the credits right in front of me. Let's see if you can recognize one of the names. Uh, let's see. Boy, there are a lot of people worked on this movie. I'll tell you. Yes, the crew shot was like 150 people. It was, Unbelievable. It was amazing. Unbelievable. Um, and this is all the the house itself was Simi Valley. Yes. Yes, that's where, that's where the exterior of the house was. Most of the, the house was built in, in studio, but a lot of shooting went on in Simi Valley, certainly, uh, in the street and in, in and around the house and going to the next door neighbors and all of that stuff. The camera operator on Poltergeist was Dennis Matsuda. Yes. That, that was me? Dennis. It was Dennis. You know, that was on the tip of my tongue. I thought, was it Dennis? It was Dennis who had to ride that thing. And I literally did 50 takes. And then, oh and then they said, oh, something's not quite right. We want to change something on the set. And we must have done another 30 takes. Oh, my God. It was, it was kind of brutal. It really was. It was hard. And I remember at the end of those days, just going home and kind of collapsing. Um, so it, they didn't have to bring in any scary effects because I personally was so exhausted that my nerves were kind of fried. So you could have said boo to me and I would be screaming. <laughs> uh, you know, well, and when we, that, 
when that, we did the muddy swimming pool sequence oh my, oh god. my god that went on for days and you know craig and i were in there and i think heather may have even been in there at one point but i was in it for days and days maybe four or five days in that thing and every day at lunch they would take us out of the pool the muddy pool they would literally hose us down with hoses outside of the set and then they'd put us in a pickup truck in the back because we were all muddy and oozing and take us to uh, you know some some special dressing rooms that had big showers and we'd shower and have lunch and then go right back in it this is the glamour of showbiz <laughs> Plus skeletons in the pool, which I thought were all prop skeletons made of, you know, who knows what, but figured they were all fake. I found out one of the prop guys told me, and this must have been four or five years later, I ran into him and we were talking and I was talking about how they made all those skeletons. He said, we didn't make them. Those were real skeletons. I said, what? He said, oh yeah, it was much cheaper to buy skeletons you know, just bones from places than to make them. I said, you mean those were real skeletons I was in that pool with? He said, yeah. I think if they had told you that up front, I think you would have taken a powder. I, I think you're right. I think it would have said, uh, I'm not getting in there. Stuff double. The irony is that the whole movie is about the fact that there were real bodies supposedly buried under the Freeling house. And, and they moved... Uh, they they moved the stones, but they didn't move didn't the bodies. Move the bodies. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> they didn't move the bodies. Yeah. They moved the stones, but they didn't move the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> no, they put the bodies in the swimming pool. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must yeah. have been it must have been thrilling for you to see it all put together for the first time. It was. It was so exciting. Craig and I had been, because we had said to ourselves, because we, you know, when you're shooting a movie, especially a movie like that, you don't know, is this working? Is this really good? Or is it just going to be terrible? You just, a lot of times you just have no idea. And so Craig would say to me, do you think it's just going to wind up at the, at the, at the third rate drive-in movies and nobody's ever going to see it? I said, I don't know. It could happen. Who knows? You know. So when we finally got to see it at a screening, it was thrilling because it was so exciting and it came together so well. And then to have it be as successful as it was, was of course extraordinary and an icing on the cake of, of such a great experience. I think um, music fans are, are, are really big fans of what Jerry Goldsmith did for the movie as well. I thought that his music was just so eerie and appropriate. It is, it is an extraordinary score. It is so beautiful. And one of my favorite experiences was that he invited us into uh, one, one of the recording sessions <clears throat> they were recording in, in studio with a full orchestra. They were recording the score and that was the first that we had heard any of it. And uh, I went and I know Craig went and, uh, and we got to just sort of, you know, sit in there and listen to them playing that music and, and recording it. And to watch that 
full orchestra and to watch Jerry Goldsmith conduct it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. It was really, sure. really amazing. Sure. Well, you, you sound uh, in looking back at it uh, 40 years later that you're very proud of that experience. I am, I really am because I felt that we as a family, Craig and all the kids really made it a movie where people cared about what was gonna happen to everybody. And that to me was the one thing that I felt could set that movie apart from other sort of horror movies and slasher movies and ghost movies. If people really genuinely got involved with this family and especially this, this child in jeopardy um, and the rescue of the child, which to me was the part that drew me was that I as a mother sort of uh, overcame all obstacles and went in to save my child come hell or high water. And I really related to that. Um, and I felt it worked and I felt that the effects that they came up with, which we look at now and think are primitive, but I think they worked at the time really well in that movie. So I'm very proud of it. On a trivia notice, I always listen to the dialogue and I'm trying to figure out what's the name of the dog? Because it's a little unclear. And I looked it up recently. And I guess the dog's name is Ebuzz? Yes. <clears throat> was that the real name of the dog or was that the no. film name? No, that was the film name. I can't remember the real name. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> no, that was that was the name that, that Stephen and the writers gave, gave the dog, Ebuzz. Came up with, got it, got it. Um, any hesitance on your part to do the sequel? Um, there was some, because I think, you know, it's kind of like if, if we were going to do a sequel to The Big Chill now, it's kind of like you don't want to mess with something that worked really well. Sure. Um, but when they came back with a script and, uh, and I read it and, <clears throat> and I thought it was good, actually, I thought it mm -hmm. was good. Mm -hmm. Um, and so... You know, and I, I said I would do it if Craig, uh, if the, the, the family agreed to do it. And, uh, and so uh, we did. And, and it was actually a kind of thrill for me to have um, Julian Beck play the part of the, the guy who was haunting us because he was, had formed a theater called the Living Theater which was very influential um, in New York uh, in the days when I was in college. Very oh. avant-garde avant theater, very avant-garde. Um, and, you know, widely respected by um, New York standards and by especially college students because, you know, it had, they had people walking naked through the, through the audience of the theater going, I want, I want to be able to smoke marijuana. I deserve, you know, I want to not have to go into the draft. And it was all very timely stuff. Um, so for, to, to sort of get to meet him finally there in making that movie. And he was very ill, but he was an extremely nice man. And, and very, very effective in that role. 
very effective. I think partially because he was so sick. He died a few months after we finished shooting. Um, but he, he did it. He managed to, to make it work. And his wife was with him, supporting him the whole time. And he was excited to do it. He really wanted to do it. You know, he said, this is a, a great thing for me to be able to do um, here in my later years. And, and so that was, that was very appealing to me. Well, I met you um, in the fall of 81. You had just finished Poltergeist when you came up to Wyoming to work on endangered species. And um, I remember you didn't have a lot of break time between films, as I recall. No, I think those those came pretty close together. Um, and for the for the listeners who haven't seen Endangered Species, it's a thriller directed by Alan Rudolph, who is mostly known for some very avant-garde independent films. But I think this was kind of a mainstream Hollywood thriller. And uh, you play a sheriff who discovers that cows are being found out on the prairie with their innards gone and no tracks leading to a mystery. And of course, this was based on a real story that there were mutilated cows being found on the prairies of the Southwest uh, with no tracks around them, leading to various theories. And you eventually team up with uh, uh, New York policeman traveling with his daughter yeah, played by Robert Yerrick and uh, Marin Cantor. I, I bet you found that an interesting role as well. I did. I mean, imagine wearing a sheriff's un uh, uniform with a, you know, a big old 45 or whatever it was on my hip all day. That <laughs> I, I loved it. You know, I swaggered around with the best of the guys. They always get to do the swaggering with the guns on their hips. And uh, I loved playing a sheriff. Um, and my favorite moment, we were shooting in a little tiny town. Um, we were shooting partly in Sheridan, Wyoming, but there was an even smaller town outside. Buffalo, Buffalo exactly. And I remember <clears throat> we were shooting and I took a little break and I was walking down the sort of main street of Buffalo. And uh, I, was, I passed a guy, a cowboy guy who's an older fella who was looking down the street and he looked at me and I asked the guy, he said, Sheriff, do you know what's going on down the street there? <laughs> and I was so flattered. And I said, you know, I heard they were shooting a movie. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thrilled that he could actually think I was a sheriff. <laughs> Yeah. Well, three, year, three years later, we got a chance to work again on Desert Bloom. And, you know, it's funny, you talk about films having their supporters and their boosters. And from what I gather, and you, I don't know if you know this or not, but I gather that the executive who worked closely with the Sundance Institute to get that movie going at Columbia uh, was fired later on. And then your movie was without a benefactor. Did you hear that? Which movie are you talking about? Desert Bloom. That movie was left without a... You know, from what I gather, first of all, Desert Bloom was not given much of a release, if that. 
And no, I, it wasn't. It really wasn't. But I didn't know that that had happened. I knew that uh, <clears throat> I thought it, it had to do with uh, the fact that it was a small movie, you know, not a big budget movie. Um, and, and Gene Core hadn't really done anything before. Right. I didn't know right. anything about studio issues. Well, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Desert Bloom, Joe Beth uh, plays the wife of John Voight's character. Uh, she plays Mrs. Chismore, and his name, I believe, is Jack Chismore, and they're a family living in Nevada in 1951 during the first nuclear test. And the story really revolves around their daughter, Rose, who is, uh, is emerging as a young woman, and it's a beautiful story, uh, just beautifully directed and beautifully acted and just a lot of fun to work on uh, in that we had to shoot it in Tucson, which was playing uh, 1950s Las Vegas. And uh, I always thought that the movie deserved a better fate. And I haven't seen it in years. I hope to see it again when it pops on somewhere in the streaming verse. I hope so, too. I mean, that was Annabeth Gish's first movie playing uh, our daughter. And she was, you know, playing 13 and she was, she was so shy and so scared, but she was terrific in it. Um, and I know that it got, it got very good reviews and uh, it was sad that it didn't get a bigger push. Ellen Barkin played my sister, you know, it was a great cast. Uh, Eugene Corr directed it and his wife, whose name is escaping me, wrote it. Um, it was actually her story, I think, about right. when she was a little kid and they did those first nuclear tests and everybody went outside to look at it and see the mushroom cloud because it was so exciting and, you know, people, nobody... people packed picnic lunches to go watch the bombs go off. I mean, it was a very strange time. I don't think anybody realized what they were, what they not, were observing. Not a clue. No, you know, no, nobody knew about radiation or at least... You know, they hadn't been warned about it. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. Well, Joe Beth, this has been absolutely wonderful, as I knew it would be, because you always have great stories to tell and and you have such a good attitude about the business. And is there anything you'd like to promote uh, of late that you're doing that you wanted people to know? Is there anything we would be should be aware of? Uh, well, I shot uh, a little independent movie in uh, Minnesota in January, February, in the middle of an Arctic storm, uh, where it was minus 26 at night, uh, called Cash for Gold, which is a, a very charming movie uh, written and starring a, a young woman named Deborah Puat and a wonderful um, uh Middle Eastern actor named uh, Farshad Farat, who is an incredible actor, who was actually in uh, Ben Affleck's movie Argo, and oh. was extraordinary in that movie. Uh, and that was, uh, it, I can't say it was fun because it was so bitter cold. Uh, we were shooting in Hibbing, Minnesota, which is um, Bob Dylan's hometown. And uh, but it was, it's a terrific little movie and I hope that it has a life. So it's something to look for. And what's the title again? Cash for Gold. Cash for Gold. Well, any movie that has Joe Beth Williams in it can't be half bad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's wonderful to talk to you again after, after a few years.
Great show, Beth. Uh, everybody, you've been listening to the Lock 22 Network. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We've had the delightful Joe Beth Williams as our guest tonight. Keep an eye out for her movie, Cash for Gold, and keep watching Saturday Night at the Movies. We love telling you these stories and presenting these wonderful people. Good night. <laughs>